0: We're going to call Billy Williams. He's on the road heading home from uh, the uh, Gulf Coast. Billy, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, Billy, I'm here with the Calvary Chapel family, and we'd like to know what you've been up to over the last few days.
1: Well, we have been getting dirty. (laughs) Uh, Everybody was getting into the hazmat suits and uh, the full face gear and goggles and, and uh, getting into mold infested houses. And it's really been amazing to watch the reaction when they have an opportunity to, to share with the um, with some of the, the neighbors uh, in the area. I mean, we had people who really just had no hope uh, of ever finding a way to get their houses back. And our guys crying on their shoulders and, and you know they they had hope it was it was really impressive to watch
0: all of the pictures that we see of new orleans uh does it do it justice or or is it worse than it it looks Uh, Billy, tell us about uh, some of the people that you worked with, and tell us about the uh, uh, police captain that I understand you helped out. Oh,
1: yeah, it was actually a major. And the police, as, as you, some of you may have heard, uh, lost a lot of their, their force down there. Some of them, you know, just went to try to take care of their families, and, and, but they lost a bunch of people, and so they're working. care of their own families and houses. And so Kevin has kind of taken the police and is working with them to help them, you know, to take care of their houses. And it was interesting, the day we arrived, uh, there were several groups in town and they all kind of converged on this one major's house and completely gutted it in about four hours down to the, to the studs in the walls. I mean, nails out of the walls from the sheetrock, carpet, carpet, plumbing fixtures, inside of the house is gutted uh, and basically other than glassware nothing is salvageable
0: well Billy thanks for going and please tell everyone that we're praying for them and we're praying that God will give you guys uh, a good safe trip back are you coming back tonight or are you going to wait and come back in the morning The last thing, you, you got my curiosity up, what in the world does Kenny Simeon look like with that beard and that, that long hair with a pair of goggles on?
1: You, Sandy, <laughs> It's a classic picture, and we took plenty of pictures we'll have to share with you when we get back. But yeah, that that is a story unto itself.
0: Everybody uh, extends their love to you and to the team. Tell everybody we're praying for them, and we're excited about what all... Uh, what all you guys have accomplished, and so why don't we all give them a, a nice, see you later Billy, or, yeah there we go, Ten four over and out,
1: thanks to everyone, we'll see you in a day or so,
0: okay great, well hey, let's turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Numbers. i got to turn this off, or James will call me about halfway through the Bible study, just to, just, to, just to get me back from that picture. Oh, by the way, you know, the folks are, you know, people are really enjoying the, the, the uh, Bible studies on Sunday morning, the new series of studies, and people are really, really getting into it. As a matter of fact, there's rumors out that some of the guys are actually uh, wearing their colors. go Luke chapter 4 they just they just can't get enough of it okay let's turn in our Bibles tonight to numbers chapter 19 I'm glad you reminded me of that James Father we ask you to speak to us tonight to encourage our hearts Lord as we study again through the scriptures uh, some exciting chapters important lessons tonight Lord and we're asking for your, direction and your insight open our, our minds open our hearts help us grow in our knowledge of of your word and in doing so Lord strengthen our faith in Jesus name we ask it amen the ultimate test of a man's character is how he handles power there are a few men who have gained power and not used it for their own selfish interests And this is why when we think of great men, Moses rises to the top of the list. God gave to Moses tremendous power, incredible authority, and yet Moses used that power to glorify God, to serve God's people. In fact, Numbers 12 verse 3 comments, The man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. In the previous chapters, the people have questioned Moses and Aaron's authority. And God has come to their defense in some dramatic ways. Remember, Miriam became a leper. The ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his cronies. Afterwards, a ground swell of discontent was thwarted when 14,700 Hebrews died in a plague. And in case this was, there was any doubt in their minds whatsoever who was in charge, who the Lord himself had called, Aaron's staff budded overnight. His stick, his shepherd's staff, actually came to life and budded. It was confirmation that God had blessed Aaron as the high priest and he had affirmed Moses as the leader. And yet, despite Moses' greatness, nobody's perfect. Not even Moses batted a thousand. And tonight we're going to see Moses' one big mistake and how it cost him dearly but first chapter 19 discusses the mysterious ritual of the ashes of the red heifer a ritual that has puzzled Jewish rabbis and scholars for centuries in fact tradition says that King Solomon a man renowned for his wisdom despaired trying to decipher the meaning of the red heifer it was quite different from all the other sacrifices in a number of ways for one The sacrifice of the red heifer came decades after Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai where and when he received the instructions on the other seven sacrifices. The sacrifice of the red heifer was offered outside the camp rather than on the altar in the outer court of the tabernacle. The priest watched this sacrifice being made rather than slaughter it like he did the others. This, too, was the only sacrifice that made the priest unclean. Very interesting. And the most significant difference with this sacrifice was that it was a heifer, a female, whereas all the other sacrifices were male. The red heifer was a female sacrifice. Remember, Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14 sheds light on all the Old Testament sacrifices, including this sacrifice of the red heifer when Hebrews says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Old covenant sacrifices effected a ceremonial cleansing, while the blood of Jesus cleanses us spiritually. Here's the point, though. The animal sacrifices all spoke of this ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And yet, how does a female cow, a heifer, speak of a man's man, namely Jesus? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 tells us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, He created them. Apparently, God Himself is a combination of Adam's maleness and Eve's femaleness. He is a blend of male strength and female sensitivity. You might say that God is a father with a mother's heart. Several times in Isaiah, God compares His love for Israel with a mother's love. Thus, Jesus is not only bullish... He is also nurturing and responsive and sensitive. Now, I'm not suggesting there was anything feminine about Jesus. He was not a she-man. But Jesus is a man as God originally designed him. An exterior like iron, a heart like velvet. Jesus is the combination of bull and heifer, of toughness and tenderness. You remember when man sinned, he lost that part of himself. God took that sensitivity out of him and created a woman. Ladies, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but your husband's not all there. There's a part of him that's missing. And that's why you are, you, God has given you to him to fulfill him and to complement his deficiencies. But in the beginning with the first Adam, that was not so. And with the last Adam... Namely, Jesus Christ, He too was this perfect blend of bull and heifer, of toughness and tenderness. And this is why whether you need power or whether you are craving intimacy and love and sensitivity, the person you need to turn to is Jesus. He supplies both. Now let's get into it, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. The heifer was to be without blemish. It was to have no defect or sin. It was never yoked or innocent. And of course, this was all just like Jesus. As I mentioned, Moses learned of the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering all on Mount Sinai. At the giving of the law. But this sacrifice comes later than the law. And it's interesting that Jesus, too, was a sacrifice that came later than the law. He says, You shall give the heifer to Eleazar the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. Now, notice, it was slaughtered not by the high priest, as was the other sacrifices, but before the high priest. And likewise, Jesus was not crucified by the high priest, but before the high priest. You remember the high priest Caiaphas sentenced Jesus to death, but then he had to pressure Pilate to pull the switch. The chief priests were even in attendance on Mount Calvary, mocking and ridiculing Jesus. The priest observed the sacrifice of Jesus, but it was carried out by the Romans. And notice, too, they were outside the camp, just as the red heifer was sacrificed outside the camp. This is another peculiarity of this sacrifice. The animals killed outside the camp rather than on the bronze altar in the tabernacle. And of course, Jesus too was taken outside of the camp and crucified along the road to Damascus, north of Jerusalem, outside the walls of the city. Verse 4, And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times Directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. It was totally incinerated. Burnt to a crisp, it was a black cow. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet thread and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Now three items were burned along with the heifer. A stick of cedar wood, a branch of a leafy plant called hyssop, and a strip of scarlet thread. And all three speak of Jesus. Jesus was sacrificed, remember, on a piece of wood, on a Roman cross, a wooden cross. A branch of hyssop with its spongy absorbent leaves was used to hold the wine that moistened Jesus' crucified lips and allowed him to utter his final words. Remember it was placed to his lips, a hyssop branch and a strip of scarlet thread which certainly symbolizes the scarlet blood that oozed from Jesus' wounds. This was the blood that atoned or covered our sin. Verse 7, Then the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water, And afterward he shall come into the camp, the priest shall be unclean until evening. And here's another peculiarity. The red heifer was the only sacrifice that left the high priest unclean after offering it. Again, it foreshadowed the role and the guilt that the high priest would incur at the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, of course, died for the sins of the Jews, but it was the same Jews that accepted responsibility for the crime for which he was sentenced. I'm certain the high priest was among those who answered Pilate, His blood be on us and on our children. Certainly after the sacrifice of Jesus, the high priest also was unclean. Verse 8, And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening, Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who sojourns among them. Now the ashes of the red heifer were mixed with water. And the water became the vehicle that carried and applied the ashes to that which needed to be purified. The solution was used for years to come in different acts of purification. Now here's a few examples of where the mixture was utilized. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. And of course, the third day, I'm sure, speaks of Jesus' resurrection. He was raised from the dead on the third day. The seventh day was the Sabbath, which speaks of the rest that we can experience when we put our faith in Jesus. Today, we purify ourselves with ashes of a red heifer when we trust our lives to Jesus. He says, whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel or or excommunicated. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Now, let's say you walk into a tent where someone has just died. It's not your intent to sin. But the problem is you're in the tent. Get that? It's guilt by association. It's a case of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I hope you high school kids hear that You can be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Your intent might be good, but because you're in the tent, you're in trouble. According to God, even if it's not your intent, if you're in the tent, it's still sin and you need purification. This is why the blood of Jesus is so vital to us. You know, before I came to Jesus, I was so thoroughly a sinner that often I wasn't even conscious of certain sins. Some sins that I committed willfully, it was my intent. But mostly I sinned because I was in the tent of someone else who had died. And his name was Adam. I and you were born under Adam's roof. We were born members of the human family under the human tent. And as a consequence, we inherit Adam's sin nature. Only Jesus can cleanse us from wrong intent and from being born in the wrong tent. Notice also, in the tent of a dead man, every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Death contaminates even the non-living elements that are in the tent. And this was certainly true of Adam's tent. God gave to Adam authority over all nature. So when he died, death spread, and it affected all that was under his roof, all creation for that matter. All nature, from weather to wildlife, was defiled by the death of Adam. Verse 16. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword, or who has died, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, on all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day, and on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. Now this is how the sacrifice of the red heifer was applied. When a person had touched something that was dead, when a person was deemed ceremonially unclean, the ashes that had been gathered and had been stored away were mixed with running water. Then a branch of hyssop was dipped into the solution, and the ashes were sprinkled on the unclean person. This applied the sacrifice to the sin that needed to be cleansed. And this is a powerful picture of the work of Jesus Christ. For when you think about it, how can the work of a man 2,000 years ago affect a cleansing in a life today? The answer is embedded here in this sacrifice of the red heifer. You see, throughout the Bible, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Hyssop is a symbol of the Word of God. And here's how New Testament purification works. The effects of the cross, of Jesus, what Jesus did on that cross 2,000 years ago have been stored up. They've been gathered up and they are mixed with water, the water of the Holy Spirit. And then they are applied to a human heart through the word of God that sprinkles that water on the heart. So when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and sprinkles the effects of that sacrifice upon your heart and effects a cleansing in you today. The Spirit and the Word are the vehicles that bring to us the merits of the cross. We're all saved by Jesus' work on the cross, but the salvation has to be received personally through the sprinkling of the water by the Spirit and faith in the Word of God. He says, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Now notice this ritual of the red heifer is called a perpetual statute. This was a major distinction for the red heifer. It was his permanence. All the other sacrifices were repeated continually, almost daily. But the ashes of the red heifer lasted for decades. They say that only seven heifers were sacrificed in all of Hebrew history. One by Moses, one came later by Ezra, and then there were five after Ezra. Only one heifer was offered during one person's lifetime. It was a a lifetime event when one of these red heifers were sacrificed. And of course, this speaks of Jesus. The cross deals with sin once and for all. Once you've given your life to Jesus, you're saved, you're sealed. You belong to God. You don't have to repeat it day after day, week after week, month after month. It's interesting, the Mishnah, a source of Jewish tradition, says that there were actually nine red heifers sacrificed And it says that the tenth red heifer will be burned during the time of the Messiah. They're waiting on that still future. It's interesting how, too, also that the ashes of the red heifer, how they figure into future events, prophetic events. You know, the Bible speaks of a rebuilt temple in the last days when Jesus returns. When the Jews rebuild it, both the temple and the priests will need to be purified with this mixture of ashes and running water. And thus there are rabbis today that are trying to breed an actual red heifer so that they can rebuild the temple and can re-implement the Old Testament sacrifices. Over the years there have been published reports of red heifers being bred in Sweden and in Switzerland and in Texas and in Mississippi and now even in Israel. One cow was the result of being artificially inseminated. Jewish tradition says that in the past, when a red heifer was needed, it would just appear in the herd. Perhaps man is trying to manipulate through the flesh what God will do supernaturally when the time is right. I've got a picture with me. This is from 2001. This is the, one of the rabbis. His name is Chaim Richmond. If you went with us to Israel, you remember going to the Temple Institute. This man is in charge of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. And here he is inspecting a red heifer that was born in Israel. According to Jewish tradition, a heifer doesn't qualify if just two of its hairs are not red. And so inspections are required. The cow in the picture here, there's several pictures of it. The red cow in the picture apparently was deemed kosher. And so all this talk of a red heifer is significant. It's a definite precursor to the last day's events and the rebuilding of the temple that are described in the Bible. There is another interesting theory. During the time of the first temple, the red heifer was burned on an altar that stood on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Today the Mount of Olives is under Muslim control and therefore would need to be cleansed. But you see purification comes only from the ashes of the previous heifer. So in recent years archaeologists and thrill seekers have been trying to find the ashes of the red heifer from ancient times. As a matter of fact a former Baptist minister named Vindal Jones became famous in his search for the ashes of the red heifer it's been reported that his story inspired Steven Spielberg's blockbuster movie Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Vindel Jones doesn't come from Indiana, he comes from Texas. There he, He's got the hat. Vindel Jones has explored caves down around, around Cymron where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and he's actually found some interesting items. He's found what he thinks is the anointing oil that was used in the temple and he's found some spices that he believes were ingredients in the temple incense it's possible that someday soon someone will discover the ashes of the red heifer back to the text 38 years transpire between chapter 19 and chapter 20 and what happens during those 38 years well read the blank line between the two chapters Nothing happens. The Israelites wander through the wilderness for 38 years. Just like a man to never want to stop Mass for directions. Moses just kept on wandering and wandering and wandering. Reminds me of Pascal Perez. You remember Pascal Perez? He was that rookie pitcher that the Braves bought up, brought up during one of their winning seasons years ago. It, on his first game... He got stuck on I-285. He didn't know where to get off. And so he just went round and round and round the perimeter and was late for the game, believe it or not. Hey, this was like the Israelites. They just kept going round and round and round. For 38 years, they drove round in circles. No progress is made until these old geezers, the Exodus generation, had died off. It was the longest funeral procession in history. For 38 years, 100 people died each day. Can you imagine? Now in chapter 20, the Pepsi generation takes over. The new generation. But they start out singing the same old song. Isn't it sad? Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And Josephus tells us that... uh, The Hebrews threw a state funeral for Miriam. a Very elaborate, very expensive funeral. And yet here they are back at Kadesh. Remember, this was the same place they were 38 years earlier. This was the border town where they sent the spies out into the land and they brought back the reports. Oh, there's giants in the land. And fear struck in the hearts of the people. Rather than believe God, rather than trust God and go into the land, they buckled under to their fear and they were sentenced to wander for 38 years, now they return to the scene of the crime. Here's where that first generation failed. What will the second generation do? Sadly, rather than have faith, they're right back to their fears. Now there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren, when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? Nor is there any water to drink. Sounds like the first generation. Sounds like their fathers who died in the wilderness, doesn't it? And speaking of figs. I guess you could say the fig leaf doesn't fall far from the tree. Go figure. The Pepsi generation looks like here they've been drinking pickle juice and vinegar. They need a little Dr. Pepper, something to pep them up, something to give them some initiative. Seems like they're drinking mellow yellow. They're yellow. They're frightful. They're fearful. They're unwilling to trust the Lord, just as their parents had been unwilling to trust the Lord. They sound like the same skeptics that died in the wilderness. You know, it's so much easier to succumb to fear than it is to have faith, than it is to step out, than it is to trust in God's faithfulness. Sadly, this second generation had learned absolutely nothing. Now remember back in Exodus chapter 17, this exact same situation, the people being without water, had occurred shortly after they had left Egypt. In fact, they came to a place where there was no water supply. And the people, the earlier generation, began to complain to Moses, just as they're doing here. And in response, God told Moses to strike the rock. you remember what happened? A miracle occurred. When he struck that rock, life-sustaining H2O gushed out of that lifeless rock. But rather than trust God to do what he had done before... These people are complaining again. Can you imagine Moses' frustration? Here we go again. Haven't you stubborn sinners learned anything? Haven't you kids learned anything from your parents? We've wandered for 38 years because you didn't want to trust God. Don't you know that God takes care of his people? Moses was steamed here and we can I, I can identify. I can understand. His patience is wearing thin. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly of the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Now this is even more amazing than Israel's doubt, that despite their unbelief, God is going to show them mercy. God does for these Generation Xers the same as He did for their baby boomer parents. He shows them the same love and grace. In verse 8, God tells Moses to speak to the rock, and water will flow out to quench their thirst. But here's what Moses does. Verse 9, So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron, Aaron's a party to this, gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Hear the anger? Hear the frustration in his voice? I'm telling you, Moses is ticked off at these people. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Now in Exodus 17, God told Moses to take his shepherd's staff and strike the rock. He did, and water erupted. But this time, God tells Moses not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock. Instead, though, Moses takes his rod and in anger... He smacks this rock twice. But notice what happens. This is so interesting. Even though Moses, the leader, disobeys, God refuses to allow an impulsive and an ill-tempered pastor to rob his people of a blessing. God is going to deal with the leader later, but for the moment, he chooses to bless his people. And so water pours from the rock. And guys, this is often the case. At times, God blesses a church, not because of the leader, but in spite of him. Just because water is flowing and miracles are gushing, that doesn't mean that God is validating the minister's faithfulness. God may just want to bless his people. He'll deal with the pastor later. That's what happens here. Verse 12 tells us, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Whoa! Moses made a costly mistake. And Moses' mistake is perhaps the Christian leader's greatest potential failure. He misrepresented God. Moses comes out screaming at these Hebrews, calling them rebels. Moses vents 38 years of frustration on this new generation. But this was not God's attitude at all. God was not frustrated with them. God was just starting with them. God loved these people. God was starting over. And he had prepared to be as patient with this new generation as he had been with their parents. God told Moses to speak to the rock. But instead, Moses, is in, in his anger, grabs his rod and he strikes it twice. Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33 provide some insight into this episode. There we're told, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Moses sinned with his lips. I'm sure God empathized with his anger. But he expected Moses to show restraint. Moses was to speak for God, not vent his own frustrations. What's interesting is that without realizing it, Moses marred a beautiful picture that God was painting for future generations, even for us today. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul speaks of the rock in the wilderness and he says that rock was Christ. That rock was a symbol of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus did need to be struck for water to flow to us. The crucifixion was necessary for man to be saved. But how many times did Jesus need to be struck? How many times did he need to be crucified? Once once and for all he died once for all for the remission of sin his death on the cross was sufficient for all sin from all people for all time in fact just before he breathed his last he uttered the words it is finished all that needed to be done had been done his sacrifice was sufficient he needed to be struck once and today if you want to be saved if you want the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit to flow through you and into you all you have to do today is speak to the rock you don't have to strike it you just speak to it in faith and he gives you the water but here is where Moses spoiled the symbolism where he marred the picture. In essence, Moses took crayons and he colored all over a Rembrandt, a Picasso. Moses misrepresented God and it cost him severely. And because of his disobedience, Moses was excluded from entering the promised land. Moses will take the Hebrews to the border, but it will be Joshua who will lead them in. Moses' punishment was a profound lesson for the Hebrews. Nobody was exempt from doing God's will, not even miracle Moses. In fact, just the opposite is true. James 3 verse 1 tells us, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. If you're a leader in the family of God, if you're a teacher in the church, don't think you get a free pass. It's just the opposite You'll be judged with a stricter judgment. God holds the leader, the teacher, to even a higher standard. You know, at times, ministry can be frustrating. Too often, people are unreceptive. Or they don't live up to the truth that you've given them. Or people become apathetic and they don't want to serve. And we're tempted to lose our patience. We can blow our lid. We can come unglued all in the name of Jesus. We can vent our frustrations and lose our composure and get angry and resentful at the same people that God loves and that Jesus died to save and that we are called to serve. That's why a spiritual leader has to be careful, has to watch his lips and the words that come out of his mouth, for misrepresenting God is a serious offense. Hey, my job is not to express my opinion, it's not to vent my feelings. It's to represent God's eternal truth, to be a faithful ambassador for Jesus. It's my job to represent heaven, not me. And here we discover that God has far more patience and mercy than any human being might have. God has enormous patience. His love, His mercy, His grace are boundless. And when a leader clouds that truth, God deals with that leader. One final thought, though Moses angered, though his anger marred God's symbolism, even in his disobedience, another picture was established. For Moses represents the law, and in the end, the law could not take God's people into the promised land. The law left them frustrated. The law left them defeated. That job was left. To a man named Yeshua we call him Joshua but it's interesting the names Jesus and Joshua are actually the same names the law left the people dead and lost in the wilderness but it is a Jesus a Joshua who leads us into God's bounty and into God's blessing so even in his moment of failure Moses provided a lesson for all time, that though the law can't bring us in, our Lord Jesus, He can bring us into the promised land. Verse 13, This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and He was hallowed among them. The Hebrew word Meribah means contention. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Remember, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, or Israel. And Moses figured that since they were relatives, Edom would offer them safe passage through their territory. Boy, was he wrong. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all of the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, He heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Apparently God didn't want Israel to enter Canaan by crossing over the... He wanted them to enter Canaan, pardon (coughs) not by crossing through the south, but by going around the Dead Sea. And crossing over the Jordan River north of the Dead Sea and of course the quickest access to that point of entry was through the borders of Edom but then Edom said to him you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword not only does he refuse Moses request he threatens military reprisal so the children of Israel said to him we will go by the highway Or if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot. Nothing more than he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. And Moses ended up circling south around the territory of Edom. turned out to be a 100-mile detour. Verse 22. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. In other words, he's going to die. Aaron's going to die. But notice the wording that describes Aaron's death. He doesn't say Aaron is going to get stuffed into the ground. Aaron is going to get packed into a cave. No, Aaron is going to be gathered to his people. What an interesting way to infer to death. When we die, we go to a populated place. We're gathered to our people. That's why it's important that you watch the crowd you hang out with. You're going to spend eternity with them. I'd like to hang out with the heavenly crowd right here on earth. That's where I want to spend eternity. For Aaron shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Evidently, Aaron was somehow party to Moses' failure. Verse 25. Then Aaron and Eleazar his son, take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. For Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Now, this was a strategic event in the life of the nation. This was the first transition of priestly power. And the people needed to see that the institutions that God had established were greater than any one individual. That access to God that came through the priest would not die off with Aaron, but that it would continue through Aaron's son, Eleazar. Verse 28, Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar come down, came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Now after Aaron dies, Moses marches the nation northward. And the Israelites encounter their first of many confrontations that they're going to have now with the Canaanites. Chapter 21. The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Hathiram. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah, which means utter destruction. Verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. I mean, this was an unnecessary detour. A hundred miles out of the way. And the Israelites, they they knew they were backtracking. They were regressing rather than progressing. And again, they start to grumble. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. And you know what they're talking about? They're murmuring about the manna, the wonder bread. The miracle food that God provides every morning. They walk out of their tent and they see it lying on the ground. It's there every morning. Even a miracle can get monotonous if you lack faith. So the Lord sent fiery serpent people and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. The idea of these snakes being fiery may refer to their color. Perhaps they were red or copper. Maybe they were copperheads. I don't know. It also could have spoken, though, of their bite, that the venom caused a burning, fiery sensation. Whatever it was, these snakes carried lethal venom. They were biting the people. People were dying. Israel was snake bit. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Again, he intercedes. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now what a strange remedy. Make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and anyone who looks at it will be healed. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus provides some interesting commentary on this episode. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you know what comes next? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus saw in these instructions that God gave to Moses a portrait of His sacrificial work on the cross. But here the symbolism needs to be explained. In Scripture, bronze is usually a symbol for judgment. The serpent, of course, is a symbol for sin and Satan. The venom of sin now flows through the spiritual veins of every man. It produces death. So why would Jesus be represented by a serpent, a symbol of sin? I'll tell you why. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us that Jesus was made sin for us. Jesus took possession of your sin and of my sin. And he died in our place. On the cross of Christ, sin and Satan were judged. A bronze serpent is a judge serpent. His venom has been neutralized. And now all that man needs to do to be healed, healed of the venom of sin, is what the Hebrews did to be healed of the viper's poison. Just look in faith on the cross of Jesus Christ where sin has been judged. Just look in faith upon the cross. And trust Jesus to take away your sin. Salvation comes to us just as it did the Hebrews, not by doing anything that might earn the healing, but by simply looking on the sacrifice with faith. It's not by doing, it's by looking. Well, verse 10 says, Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Yea Abiram." in the wilderness which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise, or toward the east. The mountains, of, the mountains of Moab were east of the Dead Sea. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zerid. From there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, the Arnon River, which fed from the mountains of Moab down into the Dead Sea, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon... Is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. And so the Arnon River that brought the brook, brought the water down from the Moab mountains. I think we got a picture of it. There it is. Verse 14. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Notice that. The book of the wars of the Lord, Wahib in Sufa The brooks of the Arnon and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. But notice the source from which this quote was taken. The book of the wars of the Lord. Apparently this is one of the lost books in Israel. It was a book that was around during biblical times but today it's lost. We no longer have a copy of it. You know It's interesting that the Bible makes reference to several books that we no longer possess. Here's a list of them. Joshua 10, verse 13, speaks of the book of Jasher. The annals of Solomon are mentioned in 1 Kings 14, verse 9. The annals of the history of the kings of Israel appear in that same verse. And we find in 1 Kings 14, verse 29, the annals of the history of the kings of Judah. There are several books that the Bible mentions that we no longer have today. Notice, though, the book mentioned here, the book of the wars of the Lord. And if you're a pacifist, that title alone is going to cause you to squirm. The wars of the Lord? Evidently, some battles are the Lord's battles. They're His wars. Just wars are apparently in the will of God. Verse 16 tells us, From there they went to Beer, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Now notice they drank water at Beer, not beer at Beer. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, all of you sing to it, The well the leaders sank, Dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves and from the wilderness they went to matanah from matanah to nahaliel from nahaliel to bamoth and from bimoth in the valley that is in the country of moab to the top of pisgah which looks down on the wasteland here's a picture of mount pisgah see it beyond the dead sea off in the distance mount pisgah is west of the dead sea it rises 2,600 feet above sea level it's also called Nebo. And just before Moses dies, God is going to take him to the top of Mount Pisgah. And there he's going to give him a view of the promised land. He will see the land, but he will never enter the land. Verse 21 Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells, but we will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. And the king's highway ran east of the Dead Sea through what is today the country of Jordan. It's interesting, it's still a passable road. Now Sihon ruled over the Amorites that lived east of the Jordan River. And his people were camped in the path of the Israelites. And again, Moses tries to be nice... He asks for safe passage, but Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness, and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the people of Ammon, for the people of the for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. Now the Jabbok was a tributary that flowed into the Jordan River about 25 miles north of the Dead Sea. And so Moses and Israel now have control of the territory on the east side of the Dead Sea all the way up to 25 miles above the Dead Sea, all on the east side. This will become their staging territory in which they'll cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Zihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. Moses routed Sihon and the Amorites. Therefore those who speak in Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be rebuilt. Let the city of Zihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Zion; it consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! You have perished, O people of Chemosh! He has given his sons as fugitive and his daughters into captivity. You see what's happening here. Notice this: he's saying Sihon has been conquered, the Amorites have fallen. Moab, you're next. The Moabites are right there too. Moab, you're next. Chemosh, which was a city of the Moabites, one of the false gods of the Moabites, you'll fall too. So, Moab, you're next on the hit list. He has given his sons as fugitive and his daughters into captivity to Zihon, king of the Amorites, but we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Debon. Then we laid waste as far as Nophah, which reaches to Medaba. Sihon had conquered Heshbon, but now Israel has conquered Sihon. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Verse 32. Then Moses sent to spy out Jazeer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. You get the idea that Moses is on a roll? I mean, the Israelites are cranking it up. They're, now there's Canaanite nations have fallen to the Israelites. And remember who's out there. Remember who's starting to feel the heat. Remember who knows he's next. Moab. And they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. Bashan was an area further east, deeper into what is today Jordan. So Og, king of Bashan. Now what mother would name her son Og? This one did. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them. He and all his people to battle at Idriah. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people in his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Zihon king of the Amorites who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. I'm telling you, God is blessing. The Israelites are on a winning streak. They are whipping every army that comes in their way. They're gaining momentum and strength and confidence and experience. And they are putting some fear in the heart of the king of Moab, a man named Balak, because he knows that he is next. And Balak is watching the Israelites. And he's taking note of their successes. And his spies are coming back and reporting. And he's growing concerned. His own country, Moab, is next on the list. And Balak wants to stop Israel. And so he pulls out his secret weapon. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Next week... We're in for a treat. We're going to talk about a strange character by the name of Balaam. Remember Balaam and his donkey? There's a lot to the story of Balaam. We'll cover that portion of Scripture next Sunday night. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We Thank you for speaking to our hearts, for encouraging us. Lord, bless your people this week. And Lord, just as we sit under your word, just as we meditate on the scriptures, Lord, may it be a balm. May it be a, a healing poultice, a compress on our hearts. And as we as we are strengthened in our faith, Lord, may we receive the healing that you have for each of us. We love you, Lord. Thank you that you heal the brokenhearted, that you preach the gospel to the poor. Help us to be about your business in these last days.